Turn to Romans chapter 2, please. Romans 2 and Romans 14. Putting on the squeeze again. I've been working pretty continually on an interpretation of Lazarus and the rich man, as you know, and I'm pretty close to a key that I want to key in on. I have eight approaches to the parable, to the interpretation of the parable, but I want to zero in on one in particular. There's a key to the interpretation of that parable, which totally subverts the whole idea of it being about hell. It's in fact, it subverts the idea completely and totally turns it upside down, but I want to do it right. And I want to do it in a way that gives honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. For we are determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I want that to be the case tonight too. Romans chapter two. We'll also be going to the Corinthian correspondence, which means both first and second Corinthians. If we have time tonight, let's take a couple of moments preparation. Father, let your kingdom come. We ask this as Jesus taught us to pray. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Picking up where we left off last week on the teacher and the schmuck. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed beneficial. And that is... In quotes, the word circumcision is indeed beneficial is a quote of the teacher that Paul is opposing here. And he agrees up to a point, as you'll see, for, quote, circumcision is indeed beneficial, close quote. If you, second person singular, Paul is addressing an opponent, if you observe the law. In other words, circumcision would be a beneficial thing. If it is part of a regimen in which the whole of the Torah is observed. But if you are a transgressor of the law, that means in any point, especially this point. And this is, I think I'll go here first because this is important not only in this message, but throughout Luke. Jesus said it in Matthew 22 37 to 40, and he said it also in Mark 12, 29 to 31, that all of the prophets, all of the law, all of the Torah, all of the prophets, hang on this one peg. There's one peg that they all hang on, and it is that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Paul puts it even more succinctly in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. If you love your neighbor, you are fulfilling the law. The problem is no one can fulfill that summary of the law's requirement except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the key player In the spiritual life, he's also the key player in the divine act of salvation and the divine invasion of the present evil age. And the Holy Spirit is woefully lacking in this teacher's gospel. So Paul is saying circumcision would be good if you observe the whole law by loving your neighbor instead of judging your fellow believer, despising your fellow believer. And using circumcision as a platform to judge others. That's what he's getting at. That's, see, we're trying to get at what he's getting at in the long run here. So I'm introducing that. So circumcision is indeed beneficial. What Paul is saying here is 
if you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if you love your, love your neighbor as yourself, because on this all the law hangs. Everything that the law and the prophets together require as rectitude is summed up in love. There's only two times when Paul uses the word anakephaliao, a a n a k e p h a l a i o o, anakephaliao. Miracles still occur, and I still know how to write that out. And that is the first one is in Ephesians one ten. Anakephaliao means to sum up everything under the headship of Christ, bring everything into Christ. And the second time he uses it is Romans 13.10. All the law is summed up in this, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul's getting at here. But it's only something that can be accomplished by the action of God the Holy Spirit and by the gift of God's own love which is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul is introducing pneumatology here. Pneumatology follows his use of Christology, and pneumatology has to do with the Holy Spirit. It also has to do with the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit, which is going to be a very important theme in Romans. These are arrows toward the heart of the matter here. But let's back up and just start and see where we are here in second chapter, verse 25. Circumcision is indeed beneficial. Paul's still using Wing Chun, the metaphorical martial art here in a rhetorical battle. If you, teacher, observe the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, and he's implying here that this person is, in any point, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It becomes undone. And if that is so, then on the other hand, if the literally acrobustia is a pejorative term Jews use for Gentiles, some Jews use for Gentiles, if the foreskin, that's the uncircumcised person, keeps the requirement of the law, And the implication is by loving his neighbor, loving her neighbor, will not his uncircumcision be considered as circumcision? That goes into verse 27, and that's where we continue tonight. And so, he says, the one who by nature is uncircumcised, but who fulfills the law, will judge you who, through the letter and circumcision, that's the letter, the outward observance and the ritual circumcision, are violating the law. For, in verse 28, here's where it gets really tricky, and we have to take the same scalpel that the priest takes to circumcise to make a very, very crucial and accurate cut and rightly divide the word of truth here because what is happening in verse 28 Paul says for one is that's the Jewish teachers view quote one is close quote then Paul jumps in with this not there's the cut that Paul makes for one is not then he continues a Jew who is one outwardly. In other words, the teacher's view is one is a Jew who is one outwardly. But right in the middle of that viewpoint of the teacher, Paul puts that nice little word not. It should be all in caps in terms of emphasis. So for one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, And Paul means that is by an external observance of the letter of the Torah. Nor is real circumcision something visible in the flesh. So Paul's Jewish Christian opponent in what is now clearly manifested to be a dialectic 
of contradictories. And I have to make that clear again because we went through it with Better Call Paul, but I'll do it again. There are two kinds of dialectics. That's uh, one of the eight theological functional specialties that Lonergan developed in his breakthrough study called Method and Theology. And dialectics is one of them. Systematics, interpretation, history, horizons is another. But dialectics has to do with a kind of a dialogue. But there are two kinds. There is the dialectic of contraries. This is what you get. And this is what I came to understand after going through Summa Theologica with Thomas Aquinas, thousands of pages of readings. But a dialectic of contraries is where Aquinas, who was the great teacher in Paris, would take questions from the doctoral students in his classes. And he would make a point, and then he would have someone challenge the point, and he would take the challenge, and instead of shutting down the student's point against his point, he would reconcile the two in a higher viewpoint. So you'd have a reconciliation of the two. They were contrary views, but he reconciled them into a higher viewpoint, and that is the genius of Thomas Aquinas. I don't go so much by his content as by his method. His method is absolute genius, and I've been using that method unconsciously ever since I read Summa Theologia. But there's also a dialectic. In other words, with contraries, you can, come to a, you can come to a conciliation. You can come to a reconciliation. You can reconcile the viewpoints into kind of a blending, but at a higher viewpoint has come to, from two. Then there's a dialectic of contradictories. A dialectic of contradictories means that they're always at odds and there's never going to be a reconciliation. The only thing that can happen is the conversion of the party of one party or another to the viewpoint. There's no reconciliation. There is no reconciliation between a gospel that is nomistic and requires human action to secure justification and a gospel that propounds divine action alone as the means of justification. There's no quarter on either side. And then we get into this, what people assume is happening in Romans, is that what Paul is doing is he's having a dialectic between justification by faith and justification by works. And so it's assumed all the way through the Reformation and even now to our day that Paul is saying, no, you're justified by the human act of believing, not the human act of works of the law, circumcision, etc. But that's not the dialectic. Paul is saying you're justified by the divine faithfulness of God revealed in Jesus Christ's death and no human action at all, including human believing. It's divine action versus human action of any kind, even human faith, not justification by your believing in Jesus versus justification by your doing the works of the law. That's the radical turn in the interpretation of Romans. That's the radical, unconditional grace of God that Paul is a proponent of. And that's just being recovered, retrieved, if you will, from Romans and other places in our time. And it's great to be joining with greater teachers and greater scholars than I in seeing this. But in verse 28, here it is. One is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That is, by external observance of the letter of Torah, and we're going to see how that works out in kosher meals, which is an outward observance of dietary law under Torah. And a Jew isn't a Jew because he participates in that. Nor is real circumcision something visible in the flesh. So Paul here is engaged in a dialectic of contradictories. There's no quarter, there's no mercy, as it were, between him and the teacher. There's, no, there's not going to be a reconciliation. Well, it's sort of human works and sort of divine grace, and it's, let's combine the two. There's no quarter. This is a 
battle to the death, as it were, and Paul wins it. Paul's Jewish Christian opponent would no doubt agree that physical circumcision alone did not make a person a Jew. He'll go that far and he'll say, okay, I agree, because he knows Jeremiah 9.25. See if that rings familiar to you. 9.25, we just went through eight hours a while ago, several weeks in a row, about Jeremiah 9.23 and 24 being the message that's distilled throughout Romans. But if you continue that in Romans 9, in Jeremiah 9.25, Yahweh promised to, quote, punish all who are circumcised but uncircumcised. I will punish, he says, all those who are circumcised but uncircumcised. And that's the kind of reasoning Paul is using here. Your outward circumcision doesn't make you a Jew. In fact, you can be uncircumcised while you're being circumcised. And on the other hand, someone who's uncircumcised can be circumcised because they're fulfilling the rectitude of the law by loving their neighbor. Well, you're violating what the law requires by assuming that you are superior or justified or rectified or sanctified by an outer observance of the law. So in Romans, in in Jeremiah 9.25, Yahweh promises to punish all who are circumcised but uncircumcised. And then he adds in verse 26 that during the time of Jeremiah, and how about Jeremiah being unpopular in his time, he said, the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. The whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So this teacher's got to agree that a Jew is a Jew outwardly and in heart. It has to be outwardly and in heart. Paul's got him on the run here. So what Paul is saying, that this fake good news preacher, you've heard of fake news, this is fake good news. It's not good news at all if you're justified by any human action whatsoever, either by the act or the habit of faith. There are some people who actually believe that you're not even saved by an act of faith, but by a habit of faith. And if you give up the habit of faith, you're done. You're going to be with a rich man in flames screaming for eternity without hope. And, of course, that whole idea blasphemes the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the worst form of blasphemy. So Paul suggests he's saying that this fake good news preacher and his ilk, other teachers like him, and there are many of them in Galatia, as we read from Galatians, they are the circumcised in the flesh but not in the heart. He suggests that the physically and ritually uncircumcised who nevertheless fulfill the Torah's requirement for rectitude by love, and the hint is your Gentile brothers in Rome, brothers and sisters in Rome, who love because they're filled with the spirit, they're going to judge you. And that's, that's a metaphorical way of speaking. They're not going to be standing up in the judgment and judging this guy. Paul's saying they're going to win out over your gospel is what he's saying. Jesus said the same thing when he said the men of Nineveh, Nineveh will stand up in judgment on this generation of Jews in Capernaum and Chorazin and other cities in Judea. He's, the point is a metaphorical point. These uncircumcised Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, but he said, look, a greater than Jonah is here, and you're rejecting me. There's nothing in there about hell. There is something in there about what Paul is after here. Same thing. He suggests that the physically and ritually circumcised have no right to judge the physically, ritually uncircumcised who nevertheless fulfill the Torah's requirement for rectitude by love. And they will, in fact, be their judges in a similar way to Jesus saying that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against the Judean cities who rejected him. The point is the fulfillment of the law by the ritually uncircumcised that Paul speaks of here is only possible in the spirit, by the spirit, 
in a key phrase that will be now fanning out through Romans. N, let me just do it in the English. Pneumati. N, pneumati. In the spirit. In or by the spirit. That little word N is the Greek preposition that's the workhorse of the Greek language. There's 36 meanings to the word N. It's not just N. It can be N. In this case, in or by, in or by the spirit. And so this will fan out throughout the rest of Romans as far as the spiritual life. Romans 2.29 will bring in the spirit. It'll hint at a great fanning out of pneumatology and the true Christian life in the center of Romans, especially 5.5 and then Romans 8, 1 through 13. Moreover, as we've seen, it corresponds to Romans 13.10 on the other flank, where the summation of the Torah is the commandment to love one's neighbor. We're also very close here to a key for the interpretation of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, that's as far as I'll go tonight with that hint. So again, this fulfillment by this uncircumcised, ritually uncircumcised person who fulfills Torah, this fulfillment of Torah is only possible in the spirit or by the action of God the spirit, God both willing and doing, as Philippians 2.13 puts it, and as Romans 8.4 says, the requirement of the law or the rectitude that Torah requires is fulfilled in those who do not walk according to the flesh, but in the spirit, according to the spirit. It becomes a divine action of the production of love. For verses that you can study on your own, you can look at Romans 2.29, which we're going to look at in a moment, but how that fans out in Romans 5.5, in Romans 7.6, Romans 8.2 and 8.4, Romans 8.5, Two times that word spirit is used. Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, 9 used three times. Romans 8, 10. Romans 8, 11 used twice. Romans 8, 13. 8, 14. This will be in print. Don't worry. Don't get frustrated or angry. Romans 8, 15 used twice. Romans 8, 16 used twice. Romans 8, 23 Romans 8.26 used twice for the spirit taking up for our infirmities in prayer and petition prayer and Romans 8.27. The apostle therefore is highlighting the rift caused by the saints in Rome, a rift, a division, you want to call it a, a gap between fellowship or you could look at it in a mixed metaphor, the building of a wall between believers by the saints in Rome who boast in their physical circumcision. Or you could say the circumcision of their husbands, sons, siblings, brothers, if they're ladies. And they judge those who are without circumcision. This again shows that Paul is after a unity among the believers there where there is divisiveness, factiousness, rooted in boasting that in, is insidious and can eventually leaven the whole church, destroy the whole church in Rome. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 speaks of that kind of leaven. Paul simply stands this on its head by saying, well, if there's to be a competition, if there's a competition, then will not the one without physical circumcision who fulfills the law's requirement of love, win out over the one who observes the letter of the law and who is outwardly circumcised but judges rather than loves his brother. And that's an interpretation. That's where Paul's going. That's what I had to do to do this is an intentionality analysis of Paul. What's he intending here? Interpretation requires intentionality analysis. If you're in the mental health field, there is something that goes infinitely further than psychoanalysis and it's intentionality analysis. You get at the heart of people's problems by getting at the base of their intentionality, their intentions. 
not just their thoughts. And this is what you have to do to interpret Paul. You have to get into an intentionality analysis. There's also an intentionality analysis that I have to do of God. What is God? What is his intentionality? Well, we know that his intentionality is his love married to his omnipotence. We also know that his great intention, which the Septuagint of Isaiah 9, 5 says, is the recapitulation of all of created reality in his son and his son comprising all of created reality so that God can be all in all. Nothing will stop that intention of God from coming to its full fruition. Once you get that down in your mind, you know what starts to happen? You start to overflow with hope. Not just for you, but for everybody. And for the cosmos itself, for the universe. And so that, I always want to keep this big picture because this is called reading Romans with the light on. I want that light to be on while we interpret these smaller, more difficult passages. I want the light of this to be shed abroad on the study of Romans. And so Paul's opponent would have to agree at this point. You can almost see him weakening. You can see him starting to weave a little bit as Paul keeps striking one time after another. He would have to agree and say that he too would say that physical circumcision alone does not make a person a Jew but that real circumcision would have to be of the heart, although this teacher would still require both. Paul wouldn't. And listen carefully to this point. The missing element in this teacher's gospel, this fake good news, is the action of the Spirit of God. The missing element is the divine action of the Spirit of God. Paul is one, and he's the one, who adds this emphasis, and we'll see it in a minute. By doing so, the Christian Jewish apostle, I'm saying Jewish Christian teacher versus the Christian Jewish apostle. This teacher is first Jewish, then Christian. Paul is first Christian, then Jewish. So Christian Jewish is different from Jewish Christian in this sense. The Christian Jewish apostle, Paul, who is a Christian first and a Jew second, and he never renounces his Jewishness. The Jewish Christian teacher, Paul's rhetorical opponent, boasts that his nomistic gospel has sanctifying power. But the Christian Jewish apostle to the Gentiles also here begins to defend his own gospel from the slanderous charge that it encourages sinfulness. And we'll hit that in Romans 3.8. There was a slanderous charge against Paul. His gospel of unconditional grace encourages sinfulness. But the missing element in that slander is that Paul's gospel teaches not just that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but that we died with him to sin in the same transaction. This Jewish teacher believes that Christ died for sins, but I have an inkling that he might believe only that Christ died for the sins of Jews or the sins of Israel, and therefore the Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be those for whom Christ died. And to become Jews, they had to be circumcised. The males, at least, had to be circumcised. The females had to align to certain letter of the law observances. And so his gospel was nomistic, rooted in law, rooted in human obedience and observance to the law. So the teacher's gospel here is also accusing Paul's of being an encourager of sinfulness. The opposite is true. Legalistic or nomistic teaching encourages sinfulness because the strength of sin is in the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. 
So the Jewish Christian teacher, Paul's rhetorical opponent, boasts that his nomistic gospel has sanctifying power, but he fails to acknowledge that the Christian, according to Paul's gospel, died to sin. By participation in Christ's death to sin, and now may live to God by the Spirit. That's called the spiritual life. The teacher's gospel, so-called, is being exposed as fake good news by two profound and fatal flaws. One, he sidelines the word of the cross. And it's marginalizing of Jesus Christ, by whose faithful death all are rectified with the life that has overcome death. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection brought rectification to the entire human race. And the rectification consists of the life that is Christ's from the dead, given to all. The full shock of this gospel hasn't hit Ted Lestai yet. I mean, us as a church. It hasn't hit yet. I've said before, the, there's times when the teacher has to restrain a little bit, not because he's afraid of preaching the gospel, but because his flock is unable to bear the full brunt of the militant gospel of the grace of God yet in its fullness, the implications of it, let's say. So in Romans 2.29, the spirit comes in. He's introduced as a key player. The same spirit who, if we go backwards a little bit, is the one who acted in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in Romans 1.4. If you go forward in Romans 8, 11, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now indwells your mortal body and will one day make you alive with Christ bodily, with bodily resurrection. That's the promise. So the spirit, the same spirit who acted in the resurrection of Jesus, who is the human son of David and the divine son of God, Romans 1, 3, and 4, he's the human son of David, descendant of David, and therefore the royal descendant, and that's going to be made much of in future messages. And he's the divine son of God, which was declared dramatically by God by his resurrection from the dead. So once again, this spirit that he's speaking of in Romans 2.29 is the same spirit who acted in the resurrection of Jesus, the human son of David and the divine son of God from the dead. The same spirit who resides in you and me permanently and who will make alive our mortal bodies in the resurrection of the dead. All the dead. And this spirit now, the spirit will enter the argument and be an equally significant player, capital P-L-A-Y-E-R, as the Messiah himself. As a divine person. So look at Romans 2.29. I said that all to lead up to this. On the contrary, Paul says, the real Jew is one in the hidden part. The teacher's agreeing with this. You can even put this in quotes. The teacher will say this too, the Jewish teacher. The real Jew is one in the hidden part, and circumcision is of the heart. But Paul himself adds this, and this is the fine cut of the scalpel, by the spirit and not the mere letter. That's Paul's addition, whose praise comes not from men, but from God. Because God looks upon the heart. God commends, God promotes, God This word means praises. His praise comes from God, this person, this real Jew. So please note that Paul inserts this little phrase that's omitted in the teacher's gospel. The teacher will also say the real Jew is one in the hidden part and circumcision is of the heart. 
But Paul adds, and this is almost a parenthesis, by the spirit and not by the letter, the mere letter, whose praise comes not from men, but from God. Please note that as Paul inserts in Romans 2.16, earlier in Romans, yeah, we're going to get through this. This is a rough part of the interpretation. Don't worry, we'll get through it. Note that as Paul inserts this phrase, through Christ Jesus, according to my gospel, the teacher says there's going to be a day of reckoning in which we will be judged. The secrets of people will be judged. And Paul says, yes, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, the judged one, the one who was judged for us, becomes our judge. The secret that he judges in us, and I've said this before, and I don't think you'll get it until I say it five or six times. The secrets that he will judge in that final judgment is the secret that you have been secreted away in Christ, in God, all along. That's the secret that will be judged in this final assize or final evaluation. So, the missing element is filled in by Paul here. The teacher's fatal omission is the action of God the Spirit. Paul then inserted in Romans 2.16 into the teacher's idea of a future judgment. He said, yes, it'll be a judgment through the Lord Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, the preacher that he's opposing never even mentions Jesus Christ ever in all of his sermonizing because Jesus Christ is sidelined where for Paul, Jesus Christ is central, not only central, but his centrality is everything. It fans out into a universal horizon to minimize the horizon and the impact of the cross of Christ is to minimize the depth of the cross, the depth of the suffering and the depth of the shame that our Savior endured. You can't knock one without knocking the other. So as Paul inserted, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus, so here he inserts by the Spirit the second divine actor. The teacher's fatal omission is the action of God in rectification, or we call it justification and sanctification, that is, in salvation. The teacher's fatal omission is the action of God in rectification and sanctification. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, using the handgun analogy, which ought to be really popular in our times, there is the double action. You get the revolver, you pull the hammer back, it clicks back. That's the first part of a double action. Then you pull the trigger, bang, double action. Then there's the single action pistol, where with one pull of the trigger, the hammer goes back and drops down. Single action, single action pistol. And salvation is a single action. It's not a double action. It isn't an action where God acts, then you act. In response, it's God acting all the way through. It's called monergism, one divine action. Salvation is of the Lord, not of you and the Lord. So it's not a double act. It's not God's act meeting your act. It's not God doing something by grace and you responding by personal faith and having salvation. It's God acting to save by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's the point. So then, here we have it. Salvation is enacted entirely by God in Christ and by the Spirit. For all humanity. The teacher's fatal omission is the action of God in rectification and sanctification or salvation. He marginalizes Jesus Christ, puts him on the sidelines, and the Holy Spirit. He avoids the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is the elimination of human action from salvation. It's offensive to people. The offense of the cross today is the universal impact of the cross of Christ, which offends those who want to be exclusive and who want to 
boast about their personal believing over and against the unbeliever. And they want to bifurcate humanity into the saved and the damned, the elect and the non-elect, if they want to be Calvinists or Reformed theologians. So he avoids the offense of the cross. All human actions, this is where I get a little controversial, because I see in Romans a human action, whether it's the minutest or whether it's the greatest. If you are capable of ascending to the highest heaven to bring Christ down, as Romans 10, 6 through 8 says, quoting Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14. If you're capable of ascending to the highest heaven to bring Christ down or descending into the lowest abyss to bring Christ up, if you were responsible for bringing Christ down from heaven or raising him up from the dead, then you can save yourself. That's the point of what the righteousness of faithfulness is teaching in Romans 10, 6 through 8. But here's my point, and I think you can see this all throughout Romans. All human actions, from a tiny nick in the male penis, which is called circumcision, to a trek to heaven to bring Christ down, or a voyage into the abyss to bring Christ up, are of no avail. Circumcision and uncircumcision are of no avail. And it's impossible for man to conceive of enacting salvation as impossible as if you yourself went up to heaven to bring Christ down or went down to the deep to bring Christ up from the dead. All human action is to no avail. Even the act of human believing is a thing that the Spirit evokes in us by his grace and his power. Salvation is the action of God. It is God who is love in act, acting omnipotently in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the more we speak on this, the more the lenses will drop and make more clear each time. Here, as elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 2.2, for example, Galatians 2.20, for example, Galatians 6.14, for example, Paul is determined to communicate Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the heart and center of God's pan-human saving design. Sunday morning, we coined the term that's already in the dictionary, pan-human. One word, P-A-N-H-U-M-A-N. All humanity, all together. Listen carefully. Paul is determined to communicate Jesus Christ and him crucified at the heart and center of God's pan-human saving design. Salvation is enacted entirely by God in Christ and by the Spirit for all humanity. I'll say that again. Salvation is enacted entirely by God in Christ and by the Spirit for all humanity. Praise Epenos, used in Romans 2.29, will come from God to every person. According to 1 Corinthians 4.5, when the Lord comes, because all of humankind will have been acquitted and all humanity will have been circumcised by the circumcision that counts Colossians 2.11 speaks about a circumcision that is performed without human hands. In other words, it's a circumcision performed by divine action exclusively, not by human hands. It is not the cutting away of the flesh of the male member, which is ritual circumcision. It is the cutting away of the Adamic ontology from all of humanity for in Adam all die but in Christ all are made alive so on the cross Christ put off from himself the Adamic ontology for all of humanity so that all humanity could live in Christ Colossians 2.11 now 
And I think you should read that on your own, Colossians 2.11 and 12, and how it's related to resurrection. In the circumcision of Christ performed by God, all of humanity participates in Christ's putting off of sin as a universal power, a cosmic power at the cross, and every human being participates in his ending of the rule of death, which is a cosmic power. He ends that rule by resurrection. So the secrets that God judges in that day involve, above all, this secret. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is secreted, secreted away, secreted away in Christ, in God. When he died to sin, you died to sin. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, it's to live to God. When you rose from the dead, it's to live to God. If one died for all, then all died with him. And then when he rose, all rose to live to God. The secret that's going to come out is going to be a very happy secret. I'm going to let that lay for a minute. And yes, Will, I'm going to fix the single double action. I got them mixed up, I know. I'll I'll fix that analogy. That was a brilliant analogy, incidentally. But the point is, salvation comes as an act of God anyways. I'm not a uh, gunsmith, but I'll fix that analogy. Now, Praise will come from God to every person when the Lord comes, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 5, because all of humankind will have been acquitted and all humanity will have been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, the divine action that doesn't, that's why females and males, there's no male and female in Christ because the circumcision that God performs isn't an act on a male member, it's an act for male and female of the Adamic ontology altogether cut away from their humanity. The ontology and the destiny of Adam cut away from all the human race. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all All will be made alive. The same all. All sinned. Universal homardiology. All were under the power, the cosmic power of sin. Romans 3.9, Romans 3.23. All are justified by grace that is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24 and through the hilasterion or the mercy seat. Therefore, God is justified. This is all about God being justified in his justification of the ungodly. He remains just and he himself becomes justified when he is judged because he judges this, that because Christ was judged for mankind, he can judge mankind righteous in Christ and still be righteous and just himself. He does not justify ungodliness, but he rectifies the ungodly, all of them. That's all coming up. I'm doing this deliberately tonight to throw the ball beyond your reach so that you can stretch a little bit. So once again, the circumcision of Christ is that by which all of humanity participates in his putting off of sin at the cross and his ending of the rule of death in his resurrection. The secrets that God judges in that day involve the truth that all were secreted away in Christ by the action of God. So what avails, what counts, is the circumcision of Christ performed by the Spirit who baptizes us into Christ's death so that we are raised to newness of life by the glory of the Father. In Romans 6.4, what avails, what counts, what has power is that which we call in, in the Christian life is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, says Galatians 5.6, but a faithfulness that works by love. That is the summation and summary 
of what we call the Christian spiritual life after salvation, as someone said. It's not, there isn't anything after salvation. Salvation is forever. Christ's faithfulness works in us by love. Love is the fruit of the spirit, and love is the requirement for rectitude by the law. So, here we are metaphorically taking the very sharp scalpel that's used for physical circumcision and making it metaphorical to make a crucial and precise cut, a right division of the word of truth. The teacher will not disagree that the real Jew is such in the hidden, not just the revealed part of his being. He knows that Christ has died for sins. This teacher knows that's why we call him a Jewish Christian teacher. And perhaps he knows only that Christ died for Israel's sins. So the prophet John speaking as a Jewish prophet said, but you remember this, he died for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The universal aspect is missing from this Jewish Christian's gospel. He does not see that Christ has died for the sins of the world and that the Christian has died and that his or her life is hidden with Christ in God. Those things are missing. He will agree that circumcision is a matter of the heart and not merely the flesh and that God commends the Jew who is circumcised in heart, but he does not recognize that circumcision of the heart is an action performed not by human hands, but by the spirit of God. And that this is the action of God making an entirely new creation in Christ. Once again, both male and female saints are said to have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. Colossians 2.11, precisely because the circumcision that counts is not a cut made on the male member and a cutting away of the foreskin, but a cutting away of the Adamic ontology altogether for males and females. He created them male and female and said, very good in Genesis 1.31. So the entire dialectic of contradictories, this whole rhetorical mixed martial arts match boils down to this. It boils down to people being in Christ and constituting the real Israel called the Israel of God by a divine action. That's why we have the cross of Christ in 6.14 of Galatians, the new creation in 6.15, the Israel of God in 6.16, and Paul saying, leave me alone after that. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Because you preach this gospel, the marks and scars will be on you for preaching it. That's what Paul said. So then, the entire, are you getting this? Dialectic of contradictories boils down to people being in Christ and constituting the real Israel by a divine action, not a human action. Moreover, as we will see again and again and again, and I hope you see what I'm doing in Romans the epistle. There's something I'm doing. There's an intentionality that I'm doing that is intended toward your liberation and transformation in degrees that you had not imagined. That's my intention for you as a pastor. I said we do a pincer action. And so let's look very briefly at Romans 14 and then we'll close. Romans 14. Paul, here's intentionality analysis before we get there. Paul is applying God's pan-human saving design in Christ and the spirit to make peace. To make peace between rival factions of saints in Rome. He's applying 
the pan-human action of God's salvation to a critical situation among the churches in Rome. So here's Romans 14. The context is the love feast. Paul is speaking about love feasts, social times where house churches sponsor dinners in which communion is probably participated in, fellowship is participated in. This is what Paul says they ought to do. Be receiving the one who is weak in faith and not to pass judgment on his opinions. This is rooted all the way back in Romans 2. One person believes that he or she can eat anything. But the weak one eats only vegetables. The one who eats, says verse 3, that is, has the freedom in their faith to eat everything, must not despise. Notice the word past judgment and despise. The one who eats, that is, the one who has the freedom in their faith to eat everything, must not despise the one who does not eat, that is, the Jewish Christian who, because of their faith, they are prohibited certain foods especially under certain conditions, like 1 Corinthians 8, if they found out that the meat that they're being served was offered to idols, their conscience can't do it. Their faith does not allow them to do it. So, don't despise them. And those who eat everything because they know they're free, don't judge them if you're a restricted dietary person. That's the point here. In the... In the context of the house church love feast, the one who does not eat must not judge the one who eats. Notice the word crino here for judge, corresponding to the uncircumcised who fulfills the Torah will judge the circumcised who violates the Torah in Romans 2.27. Listen to this as it closes, and that's as far as we'll go as verse 3. The one who does not eat because their faith and their conscience doesn't allow them to yet. There's still Jewish Christians with a sensitive conscience toward the scruples of Torah as far as diet. Nothing, that doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean they are saved. It doesn't mean anything. It means that they're a brother that you're not supposed to despise. And the Christian, the Gentile Christian, or the Jewish Christian like Paul, who knows he's free and eats with the Gentiles and eats everything, You don't judge them either if you're the Jewish Christian with the sensitive conscience. The point here is, in verse 3, the one who eats must not despise the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat must not judge the one who does eat. Because God has received him. And that means... God has unconditionally received that person. God has unconditionally received her. So if God has received her, Romans 15 says it again, only with more emphasis, Christ received you to the glory of God. If God has received her, who are you to reject, interrogate, despise, argue with, or judge her? It ruins the love feast. There's a love feast, a social time of believers that is culminating with the communion service after they have eaten and after they've had their little social time. But if that turns into an argument, well, we want to know what you believe about this and we want to know what you believe about that. We want to know why you do this and like the Pharisees, we want to know, Jesus, why your disciples don't wash the implements and wash their hands, ritually speaking, not for cleanliness, but ritually speaking before they eat. And that does not add up to fellowship. The point here is God has received her. God has received him, whoever they are. God has received them unconditionally because of the faithfulness of Christ. So as 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, do not judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts and then each and everyone will have praise from God. The praise that comes to the one who is circumcised with an act of God by the Spirit will have praise. And that's going to mean everybody has praise because the circumcision of Christ applies to everybody. 
The judgment has a single outcome and it's salvific. The final judgment is an act, a final act of universal salvation. With all this said, how can people interpret the rich man and Lazarus as some guy in hell? That's the point of Luke. Luke Luke is a universal gospel. So everything about Luke is that God, nothing is impossible with God. Jesus Christ is the one whom the law and the prophets speak of. He's the one who suffers and enters into his glory. He's the one who, by whom all flesh will see the salvation of God. But right in the middle of Luke, Jesus talks about one guy in hell forever, and there's a golf fix that he can't get saved. What do you think's happening there? It's the opposite of what people interpret it. And so they make their case for hell, and they make it with more passion than I've ever seen them make the case for grace. And that's the ones that are opposing this gospel. You don't despise them. You don't hate them. You don't ask them. You don't argue with them. You pray that God's kingdom overcomes them and his grace takes them over because his grace ultimately is irresistible for all mankind. You pray that it will be irresistible to them. And that's the only thing you can do. All right. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you will allow your kingdom to come through this message and through many other messages. May we understand the bottom line of this whole thing is that salvation is the act of God and that the act of God has a universal cosmic dimension to it and that with this confidence, hope overflows in us and hope is not a shame because the love of God is poured out in our hearts, which fulfills the rectitude that the law requires. Bring unity in the church in America. Bring unity in the church of Jesus Christ in the nations today. Bring unity in the church in our generation. Bring unity in the church in our children's generation and their children's generation. Do it by a vision of a universally salvific saving act in Christ. For without this vision, we're perishing, Father, with it. We are experiencing your so great salvation. And we thank you for the privilege.